Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 4th of May, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us east and approaches from the Netherlands. Also, Vanessa Beely and uh, Debbie Evans. So we've got a packed news today. Uh, we'll get straight on then with, uh, well, the British government uh, has announced £300 million, another £300 million tranche, uh, tranche of military aid in inverted commas to support Ukraine's ongoing defence against Russia's illegal invasion. This was announced, of course, when Boris was speaking uh, to the Ukrainian parliament uh, yesterday. Um, we'll come on to that in a little bit uh, in a second or so. Uh, but this is apparently including uh, radar equipment, uh, heavy lift drones, um, and thousands of night vision devices. Um, so there you go. Uh, but the question is, Brian, um, how has uh, Ukraine been betrayed? Well, of course, the weapons are a key part of it because it's too little too late. Um, but what we thought we'd do today is just a very simple overview, um, which we have taken from all the information we can get at the moment. Uh, let's have a look at how this thing has built up. Uh, what has the West done? So we're going to say stage one was to take control of Ukrainian uh, politics. And obviously key to this was the fact that the US and the UK in particular got stuck into Ukraine uh, and helped to ramp up uh, the troubles in uh, 2014. And I'm going to say, uh, as I work through this, we'll, we'll certainly be asking Alex and uh, Vanessa uh, whether this fits the impression they've got of the dirty dealings of the West. But that's the key thing. 2014, everything gets turned upside down in Ukraine. No question that the US and the UK had a dirty hand in that. Uh, we then get Zelensky into power. And what is he? Well, he's a Western-backed comedian puppet. I don't think we can describe him any better than that. Uh, the man has no qualifications to do the job he's doing, except that he's clearly in bed uh, with the West, who think he's some form of saint. Uh, then we had the semi-covert takeover of U Ukrainian state media. And of course, the British government heavily involved with that, but they used BBC media action on the front end. And once uh, that transformation of Ukrainian media was complete, then Western policy could be flooded into the population of Ukraine. Uh, we've then got the rebranding of the extreme Nazi political agenda as acceptable. So the BBC knew felt full well how dangerous that Nazi element was, but they simply airbrushed it away along with Ukrainian crimes in the Donbass and indeed across uh, Ukraine itself, where they attacked their own citizens. If we go into stage two, that was to foment increasing anti uh, an increasingly anti-Russia line. Um, so we'll bring in as point five, use the UK, US and EU media to inflate Ukrainian confidence to believe that Ukraine is an accepted part of the EU and NATO club. And I think Zelensky might would have been very susceptible to this because he he was led to believe he was one of the big boys when clearly he's not. They ramped up Ukrainian confidence that they could do no wrong in their increasingly aggressive anti-Russian rhetoric and military posturing. So this was really sowing the seeds for war. Um, then uh, they encouraged the West and NATO, the EU has encouraged war 
by leading Ukraine to believe that they can win against uh, Russian military action. And I think this is an absolutely key point. Into stage three, we're then using Ukraine as proxy cannon fodder. Well, reality cannon fodder, but a proxy war uh, for the West's real agenda, which is to weaken the Russian regime, uh, regime and to achieve regime change in Russia. This has been very clearly stated. Uh, so when the war starts to bite uh, at an early stage, many of the really good commentators are saying, if you have a look into the negotiations in Turkey, the Ukrainians were starting to move and be sensible but then it's clear a lot of pressure from the West to stop them moving into a more positive um, uh, series of negotiations uh, with Russia. Uh, nine, we deceive Ukraine into believing that NATO is going to fight the war as their saviour. And ten, the key bit here, Mike, the weapons and munitions come in, but it's too little and it's too late. So we've, we've now reached the stage where Ukraine is failing. The infrastructure is now shot to pieces, literally. And uh, we know that uh, the good Ukrainian troops are taking heavy losses. But uh, where do we go? Well, stage four, we've got to prolong the war. Uh, we're going to ignore the Ukrainian suffering. And this is because the real attack is on Russia itself. And of course, as the war gets prolonged, we drive up Ukrainian military and civilian deaths and casualties. And we've got these repeated false claims that they can win against Russia when the evidence from the battlefield is very clear now that they're losing and ultimately they're going to lose this war. So this leads us in who has been telling the Ukrainians they can win, Mike? Uh, well, Boris has been telling the Ukrainians they can win. And he did that uh, a couple of times uh, during his presentation to the Ukrainian parliament yesterday. Now, I could have chosen to show you the uh, clip uh, without the propaganda attached to it. But uh, I thought that would be much more nauseating for us all to watch it uh, with the music, uh, the background music and the rest that number 10 pushed out this morning. Um, so let's just have a look at this. This is Ukraine's finest hour that will be remembered and recounted for generations to come. Your children and your grandchildren will say that Ukrainians taught the world that the brute force of an aggressor counts for nothing against the moral force of a people determined to be free. They will say that Ukrainians proved by their tenacity and sacrifice that guns and tanks cannot suppress a nation fighting for its independence. And that is why I believe and I know that Ukraine will win. I'd been to Kyiv on previous visits and I'd actually I think I'd met some of you and I'd stood in the Maidan and I'd seen the tributes to those who had given their lives to protect Ukraine against Russian aggression. And I've wandered the lovely streets of your capital and I've seen enough about Ukrainian freedom to know that the Kremlin was making a fundamental miscalculation, a terrible mistake. And I told everybody I knew anybody who would listen that Ukraine would fight and Ukraine would be right. I have one message for you today. Ukraine will win. Ukraine will be free.
We will carry on supplying Ukraine alongside your other friends with weapons, funding and humanitarian aid until we have achieved our long-term goal, which must be so to fortify Ukraine that no one will ever dare attack you again. When we look at the heroism of the Ukrainian people and the bravery of your leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, we know that Ukraine will win. And we in the UK will do everything we can to restore a free, sovereign and independent Ukraine. Thank you all very much for listening to me today. And Slava Ukraini. Now, I could see uh, some of our guests squirming uh, on the other end of the line there, and I could see it going nuts in the chat box as well. Uh, and uh, so, Vanessa, first of all, uh, welcome to the program. But what are your thoughts on that? Because uh, I thought that was quite an incredible propaganda piece. Well, I mean, it's Boris's attempt at being Churchillian, isn't it? I mean, we see this sort of Churchillian thread running through all of the speeches from Zelensky to, to Boris now. I mean, there's so much, I'm struggling to find a polite way of saying it, there's, there's so much rubbish in what he just said. I mean, even down to the fact that Ukraine will achieve its independence. Well, from who? From NATO, from UK, US-led occupation and control. Um, and its proxy Nazi ultranationalist battalions. Uh, I, I mean, this is, you know, this is just, I, I don't know. I mean, I just feel that we're living in an alternative universe right now. Yes, yes, absolutely. And Alex, uh, Vanessa is absolutely right, Churchillian, because it was uh, it's the Ukrainian's finest R. And if we just briefly uh, put up the, uh, the still from, that, you that you sent us from that, uh, of, of the standing ovation, um, Yes, what can we say? They they are they are absolutely fooled. Well, there, there's lots of uh, wistful longing, uh, looking up at the video screens, perhaps a tad of the Stalin era, as in, you know, uh, the first that uh, stops clapping will be spotted by the NKVD and carted off to the back, possibly muscle men and rifle bearing generals and well, soldiers of some kind in, in the uh, in the box there. Uh, Churchillian is, is, is the word, not just at the beginning with the uh, uh, the rhetoric that was well well recognised as Churchillian, but towards the end, that uh, inverted word order of so to arm Ukraine, meaning to to such an extent. It's it's a kind of language that uh, disappeared from English political rhetoric in the 1940s and has been very carefully brought back. One of the few moments when it breaks surface that the PRO agencies are writing the script, both for the British government and the Ukrainian government end of this, I think, that the PR war is, is quite spectacular. In the middle of the speech there, a pretty dodgy expression used was Ukraine will fight and Ukraine will be right. Um, I've only ever heard that being used by both sides of Northern Irish terrorism in the past. Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right, or Ireland will fight and Ireland will be right. I've never heard it in any other context uh, other than uh, we are above uh, normal moral justification. Anything we do is self-justifying. Uh, yes. And Alex, just a quick comment then on the other thing that we uh, highlighted or we want to highlight from that, uh, our long-term goal, our long-term goal. So he's not talking about Ukraine's goals. He's talking about Britain's goals and his goals specifically. This shouldn't surprise, of course, because uh, it's, you know, from personal experience, uh, although it's also been attested in other sources, I know that MI6 has been running 
Ukrainian government, and particularly SBU, the security service, uh, for about 15 years now. So, you know, they, they, they well know that what they're serving is the bigger agenda. And in Brian's abs- absolutely excellent uh, opening four slides about how the Ukrainians have been led up the garden path, that came out repeatedly that there was years, as there was with Georgia in the previous decade, years of buttering these guys up to think that if we can prove that we have a good score, we'll get into the big boys club and show our Euro-Atlantic orientation. So there's never been any bones made about it in Kiev. The, uh, the aim is to join another bloc, not to be independent. Yes. OK, uh, let's uh, move back to Vanessa then. And uh, well, on screen here, we have a headline. Former uh, fighter in Syria launches medical mission to treat victims in Ukraine. Yeah, um, I mean, where have we heard this before? I mean, what I'm going to show in this short sequence is um, one, uh, as we know already, uh, Ukraine is another proxy war for for NATO. Um, But also the the tremendous crossover from Syria to Ukraine uh, in the sense that they're moving mercenaries around that were uh, fighting alongside Kurdish separatists in the northeast of Syria, of course, a project uh, to partition Syria on behalf of Israel, the US and the UK in particular, but also um, uh, to to uh, anger Turkey to some degree, because of course their nemesis are the Kurds. Um, but it, this guy I've picked up on in particular, his name is Mesa Gifford. He is now, um, he's gone from fighting alongside the YPG uh, in Syria to Ukraine, both as far as I can understand it, as a military expert and as someone who's going to be extending British um, volunteers into Ukraine and this idea of humanitarian aid which of course uh, we know is, is, a, is a euphemism for uh, British interference in the state affairs of a target nation. Um, the, the first connection between him and what's going on now in Ukraine um, is on February the 24th, Zelensky launched the idea of the International Foreign Legion um, on a number of news Uh, sources, Mesa Gifford has admitted that he is the one responsible for setting up the website and a number of Facebook pages to actually act as a a recruitment agent, although he goes to great lengths to describe himself as a facilitator rather than a recruiter. Um, An interesting differentiation. I'm not quite sure what the difference is. Um, This is something that he did uh, in Syria for people to join the YPG. He had a number of Facebook pages, including one called the Lions of Rojava, which was used as a recruitment um, hub for people wanting to go and fight with uh, the YPG. This is a guy who, Mesa Gifford is a pseudonym. Sadly, there is also a financier based in Banbury who's had quite a large amount of of problems because he also has the name of Mesa Gifford and he's been regularly mixed up with this Mesa Gifford who apparently has taken this pseudonym to protect his identity. However, as I'll point out um, fairly quickly, he's he's one of the most high profile mercenaries that I've, I've ever come across. I mean, here he is talking pints um, with Nigel Farage about Syria and Ukraine. 
if we come back to the, his uh, recruitment drive, uh, we have a number of websites that he may be responsible for. He does tend to go dark when it actually comes to um, the, the various websites that he claims to have established. But here you have joined the International Legion of Defense of Ukraine. Um, freedom is a choice. Join the brave. Russia invaded Ukraine, enlist to the International Legion of Defense of Ukraine, and there you have a button which you can press uh, to join, sorry. Um, you also have there the download, the instructions. He gives a full list of instructions, which include contact the embassy of Ukraine in your country, prepare your documents, which include obviously your passport, your international passport, proof of military service, and any other documents requested come to the embassy for the interview, fill out the application form, get instructions on arriving in Ukraine, um, your necessary documents. Of course, we're also hearing from mercenaries on the ground that this isn't going quite as smoothly as expected. Um, and uh, in the Ukraine at the collection point, join the Foreign Legion of Territorial Defense of Ukraine, sign a contract, which again, we know from various interviews is, is um, a binding contract in the sense that you, you can't break it despite the, the the pittance that you're paid to basically be cannon fodder. Um, then let's have a look at who this Mesa Gifford is. So as I said, um, he's a former city banker, Tory councillor, who allegedly in 2014, 2015, the dates vary depending on the on the media reports, he turned his back on a fat salary to join the fight against ISIS. Um, he joined the YPG in the Northeast. He then effectively, as I said, acted as a recruiting agent, or as he likes to say, a facilitator. Now, from this point on, he has regular contact with the British government, and he himself admits that he has regular contact with British security after he was detained on one return to the UK because, of course, he been uh, in Syria. Um, his own uh, bio, um, which I will come on to, um, sorry. So this was a guy, as I said, um, who went in 2015. Mesa Gifford is allegedly a pseudonym, but let's have a look. This is just one section of the Google search on Mesa Gifford, which shows literally hundreds of articles about this guy, um, a, a huge archive of photographs. So for someone that is trying to protect his identity and his family, he's very high profile. Um, <clears throat> let's come back to the fact that he mentions here the humanitarian aid agency that he wants to set up or the medical service that he wants to set up will be based in Lviv. Why is this important? Because I'm going to make the connection here between, and you'll see why, between Gifford and the White Helmets in Syria and Gifford and the White Helmets in Ukraine. Now, the White Helmets, just to fill in an audience that may not know about them, were established by a former um, British military intelligence officer, James Lemessurier, in 2013 in uh, Turkey and Jordan, and effectively they were a pseudo-humanitarian organization, often comprising of actual al-Qaeda and terrorist elements inside Syria, working alongside the terrorist groups to provide 
the demonization propaganda against the Syrian government and against Russia inside Syria, including, of course, the chemical attacks. Um, so effectively, this guy, Mesa Gifford, wants to set up um, a medical aid organization in Lviv. Why is Lviv important? Because Lviv is effectively the military hub for NATO. It's the military training hub for um, NATO uh, commanders and uh, trainers that have been training, particularly the Azov and the Ida battalions in Lviv. Um, here you have the far-right extremists and Ukrainian military bragging about Canadian training. So in other words, just as the White Helmets could not operate inside Syria without the authority of terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, um, sorry, the dog's dreaming while she's sleeping, <laughs> um, the, uh, these medical experts that are now gathering in Lviv under the the control of Mesa Gifford um, cannot operate without the authority of the far-right battalions and the NATO military trainers. Then let's have another look at Mesa Gifford here. So here he repeats that he was a former foreign exchange trader who went to Syria in 2015 to fight with the YPG. And of course, as I've mentioned, the YPG is effectively another um, NATO member state proxy working on the partitioning of Syria once the regime change war, military war had effectively failed. But look, this is, this is a guy claiming to be an individual maverick who, who on the basis of his own moral conscience has decided to go and fight ISIS in Syria because he believes the British government is not doing enough. So there you have a, a kind of a passive message that the British government should do more and should intervene militarily in Syria. Um, but let's have a look at what else he's also been involved in. He's conducted expeditions into the Congolese rainforest. He's campaigned against Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. And this is interesting, worked with the British Council on the Horn of Africa project. Um, and currently studying for a master's degree in security, peace building and diplomacy at Loughborough University, and I'd quite like a comment from uh, Alex on that in the end. So let's have a quick look at British Council. It self-advertises itself um, as the UK's soft power advantage, so the NGO soft power, smart power complex. And the Horn of Africa project is um, about identifying young art artists to become social leaders. So of course, this is the the kind of very typical um, soft power intelligence scouting, the, the, the scouting out of a potential opposition or um, um, controlled leadership that will be beneficial to UK foreign policy in the target country. But then let's have a look at um, Mesa Gifford's connection to other mercenaries now in Ukraine, like Aidan Aslan, who has been arrested um, by the Donetsk uh, Popular Republic uh, forces and is facing trial as a British mercenary who committed war crimes or is suspected to have committed war crimes and to have been involved in the attacks on the DPR and the LPR, the uh, Lugansk Popular Republic. Um, an article in Middle East Eye talks about uh, the Westerners who went from fighting Islamic State to aiding Kiev. Aidan Aslan is involved in that, but so is um, 
Mesa Gifford and a number of other names that, that are mentioned in that article who appear to be connected to Mesa Gifford. Aidan Aslan definitely is because he's talked about him in a number of interviews. Now, what is Mesa Gifford setting up in uh, Lviv? Again, controlled by the Azov battalions. Um, an organization called the Nightingale Squadron. I'm sure that has no connection to Florence Nightingale. Um, here you have the website, which is unusual because most of his organizations, it's been very difficult to find any trace of them. It's been very difficult to find any uh, websites for them. Um, so what are they doing? Building teams to help Ukraine. First of all, military, medical, and humanitarian. And by the way, this is allegedly someone who had no military training before he went to the Northeast, but yet there are numerous videos um, and photographs of him fighting uh, alongside the YPG in the Northeast. This is also a guy who has direct contact um, with, uh, with, sorry, with the FBI, this is admitted by himself, with uh, British intelligence, with British government, British parliament. He's been able to write articles in the Telegraph, the Times, the Guardian, the Jerusalem Post. <clears throat> um, now, this is where it gets interesting. If we come down to the second last paragraph, so he, he basically fills you in, this is his fundraiser, and of course the headline on the fundraiser, which I haven't shown here, is Ukraine needs you, so that's a, a throwback to uh, wartime propaganda to get people to join up. Um, but what he says, we want to be absolutely clear here, the ambition is to create a Ukrainian version of the White Helmets. The people of Ukraine are fighting, fighting, sorry, are fighting like lions in defense of their country, and we must do our part to support them. Um, <clears throat> in the same article that talks about his mission, he says again, the ambition is to create a Ukrainian version of the White Helmet. Um, so this is clearly his remit here. Now, we can say that this guy is an individual working on his own. Uh, that's certainly how he likes to portray himself. My, I would speculate that with the contacts that he has, with the free reign that he has, the fact that he was the one to establish the website immediately to recruit people for the Ukrainian Foreign Legion, his connections to intelligence-linked media in the UK, his connection directly to parliament, his promotion of uh, UK foreign policy, both in Syria and in Ukraine, um, would lead me to believe that he's rather more than just an interested individual um, fighting on behalf of a cause that he genuinely and perhaps misguidedly believes in. Um, his arguments, as I say, are all um, based around British foreign policy, global Britain's uh, foreign policy. But then looks, let's look at also how it ties in with the White Helmets policy. Uh, Raid Salo, who's the director of the White Helmets in Syria, has been very clear that the White Helmets in Syria stand with the people of Ukraine, and they have offered not only to provide training, they've provided video training, but they've offered to send um, their own operatives into Ukraine to, to help um, establish something similar there. Then let's look at 
the resurgence of the white helmets in political and diplomatic circles. Riyad Saleh has recently been speaking at Chatham House. He's been speaking with Samantha Powers at SOAS in London. Um, he's been meeting with a U.S. and Canadian officials. Now, why is can Canada important? Because, of course, Canada is directly involved, as is um, the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, etc., in the training of the Azov and Idar uh, Nazi battalions. And, of course, uh, in the last two days, General Trevor Kadja, um, formerly the head of the Canadian forces, um, was reportedly arrested trying to escape from the Azov-style plant in Mariupol um, and is being held um, for questioning by uh, Russian forces. Um, then let's make the jump to Alistair Harris. Alistair Harris, CEO of um, Art Group Analysis Research and Knowledge, who employed James LeMessurier, the former British military intelligence officer who established the White Helmets in Syria. Um, very, uh, I think around 2016, I started to talk about the fact that the White Helmets would become a global franchise. So we now have potentially the White Helmets being established in Ukraine. We have here Alistair Harris talking about the fact that uh, he has been involved in the British intelligence operations in Lebanon to infiltrate governmental, military and security institutions as proven by the leaked Foreign Office documents um, I think last year. But here he is on his own LinkedIn page talking about the establishment of defense inside Lebanon itself. So a copy of the White Helmets, the logo is very similar to the White Helmet logo inside Syria. He's also involved in establishing or, or in promoting Medex for Ukraine, a, another kind of mirror organization to what Mesa Gifford is doing to supply allegedly humanitarian and medical aid into um, Ukraine. Of course, again, as we know, that has regularly been uh, used as a cover for supplying arms and military equipment. And here on his same LinkedIn page and his activity section, he's also talking about a new initiative in Yemen in relation to the Palestinian white helmets. So I think what we have here is a confirmation or vindication of my opinion in 2016 that the reason that the white helmet construct was being so heavily protected um, by its UK and US and EU handlers was because it was going to be used as a future construct, um, as a Trojan horse to, to infiltrate um, the society and, and um, enable military action against the enemies of the same NATO member states that established the White Helmets in Syria. Well, maybe we could uh, get some thoughts from Alex on that, because that was quite an amazing uh, analysis. analysis of, yeah. Yes, well, um, I'm blown away by it. It's extremely coherent. And I was asked specifically to comment there on Mr. Pseudonym's um, description of himself in his blurb as doing security studies at Loughborough University. Well, the big uh, nest of deep state students of security and intelligence in Britain is St. Andrews. Uh, there was an interesting erroneous mention of London at the very end of the slide in question. In a moment, perhaps Vanessa can tell us where she got that blurb from, from a presentation of some kind. Because when I read it, Loughborough University, London, my first thought was 
an American put this together and assumed it was uh, a London university. Uh, even if it were a foreigner based in Britain, such as for a PR company, uh, maybe some European or someone from further afield working in London, they would have gone away and looked it up, even if they couldn't pronounce Loughborough. So Loughborough University, comma, London, suggests to me that uh, that blurb has got some foreign angle to it, as in not British, which is rare, unusual, because as Vanessa has eloquently set out, all roads lead to London, or the Cotswolds in this setup. Um, the interesting int uh, use of a a pseudonym that's rare and belongs to a real-world man who's been victimised by it, a trader in Banbury, or financier, sorry, uh, is a hallmark of authenticity to me, because I know from all my Cambridge cohort who went into the City of London that the two wings, namely the traders and the geeks, love to play elaborate practical jokes uh, and quite acerbic ones on each, other's, uh, each other. And it seems to me just the kind of thing uh, that one of the uh, you know, uh, forex trading types in the city would do would be to find as his as his as his dupe as his as an unwilling victim somebody of a real name that was easily identifiable because it's rare uh, who belongs to the other wing of the city and say there you are you know so it, i'm afraid it's horribly redolent of all i know about the hooray henry set from public school in oxbridge and how they go off and do their jollies in the world so we just back to vanessa for a moment to tell us where she got that blurb from that's interestingly describes loughborough as being in london oh before i forget to say loughborough has no background known to me in security studies which makes it even more suspect uh, suspects i think as far as i'm aware loughborough university in leicestershire in the midlands is well known for sports nutrition and, and related fields but not for security mm. Um, I'm just checking, actually, because I have a memory of saying that he was educated in Cambridge. The, the problem is that the, the information changes. I mean, as I said, I've, I've never come across someone that is so um, prolifically seen in Western media. It's extraordinary. I mean, you know, you can't move when you when you put his name into a Google search you'll be endlessly watching his interviews and his his uh, reading his reports the fact that he's been given a platform in the guardian the times and the telegraph and the jerusalem post is also very um telling to me i mean you don't get that kind of um no um, um coverage exposure oh. and unless of course you, you are useful to mm. the british intelligence services let's say um so I think you're absolutely right. That blurb, oh my goodness, you're putting me on the spot now. I can't actually remember which website that came from because, as I say, there are simply so many. Um, but I will definitely find it. But I think you're, you're, you're absolutely on point regarding the Cambridge connection because I have a funny feeling I was just trying to look then at his Wikipedia page, but it doesn't mention it. But I'm pretty certain it mentions it somewhere else that he there's, was educated. There's a lot of... There's a lot of getting one's own back on various professions going on here. I mean, at public school in Oxbridge, the big question is, do you go into the city or in the spook world, if you've got the brain for either, right? And within the city, do you process your, prostitute your brain high or low? Do you become a geek or a trader? But um, if, if our man here uh, became more of the, uh, the, the trading route, the sort of the, the, the front end, the barrow boy type, as they call them in the city, and, and his backroom boys are you know, using him. The ultimate joke is that those in Cambridge who went into the spook world are ultimately pulling the strings and they will drop him when he ceases to be useful and then he won't get his acres of coverage anymore. Uh, well, Alex, uh, let's uh, let's move on then. And uh, uh, Vanessa was talking about uh, the uh, what's mercenaries operating in Syria, then moving to Ukraine. Um, we have one that you want to highlight here, um, Andrew Hill. 
He's extremely local. I have very little background on who he is, but he is from your own city of Plymouth. He says so in the recording we're about to hear. This is his uh, piece to camera when he's been captured by the Russians, um, and it's uh, courtesy of Rudenko Television, uh, two and a half minutes long, a bit dishevelled, and he seems, whether it's genuine or not, uh, to be genuinely penitent and to have got himself into more than he could, uh, to, to bitten off more than he could chew, shall we say. So although there's not much more background, uh, I expect there'll be follow-up given that his family are near you in Plymouth. We'll find out one way or another what's going on. And I think the video speaks for itself. My name is Andrew Hill. I'm 35 years old. I was born on the 25th of September, 1986. I'm a British citizen and I live in Plymouth. After coming to Ukraine, I realised it was hell here. Um, after meeting a lot of foreign mercenaries who have experience of fighting in a lot of different countries around the world, they are ready, uh, they are willing to do any dirty job needed for money. They are really bad people and they are sadists. Uh, war is not, they don't come to war uh, for money, they do get money, but they do it because they enjoy it. Many of them do not understand the Ukrainian and the Russian language. Uh, this is the reason why they shot them, killed them, and injured them indiscriminately. They stole uh, valuable things from these people without any shame at all. Mercenaries also tortured uh, Russian soldiers and Russian pro-activists. They cut off their fingers and they tortured them. Prisoners were severely beaten and they were deprived of their food and their drink. I have never seen such cruelty on this scale before. The supporters of the neo-Nazi and the nationalist uh, ideology prevail in this camp. They are proud of their tattoos uh, of the swastikas and their double SS emblems. It was awful. Unfortunately, I found myself among these terrible people and unwittingly uh, became involved in these war crimes. I understand uh, what has been, everything that has been done wrong, and I hope for leniency from the Donetsk People's Republic, um, and I hope that hopefully that uh, I am forgiven and that uh, I am able to go home. I say to all foreign uh, nationals that are in this country that they need to leave this country immediately. This is not their war. Uh, they can leave at any point. They can break their contracts at any point. I recommend they do this. Uh, you are not covered under international law and you will not be covered under the Geneva Convention. This is not uh, a trip for people to come to. This is a real war, a war with two countries. And if you come here, there's a real chance that you will die. This is not your war. I urge you to leave immediately. Well, pretty poignant, Mike. I think we have to say we've no idea of the circumstances in which he gave that uh, address to camera. He does appear to be reading a script. Was he under duress? Has he suffered sleep deprivation? We just don't know. But there is a certain truth to the message that we're actually pick, picking up from looking at other sources across the internet. Um, Alex, uh, 
CTV here, military officer retires, heads to Ukraine. I think uh, this is the uh, officer that Vanessa was speaking about a second ago. It is, and the staff writer for this is Lee Bertiome of the Canadian Press. So this is mainstream, actually. I stress again, because otherwise we'll be accused of uh, misinforming people. This is unconfirmed as of yesterday, as Vanessa was at pains to say herself. But this isn't just any old general. Let's see what's going on here. So the byline is Ottawa. It's uh, written as of yesterday or the day before. A senior leader, that's Newspeak uh, for uh, flag officer, in the Canadian Armed Forces, bear in mind all that Vanessa has rightly said about the Canadian leading role and the uh, uh, Ukrainian emigres uh, steering Canadian policy towards Ukraine, that's in the back of, the, of, the, of the, that picture here, has retired and travelled, two verbs in one time, retired and travelled to Ukraine to help defend the country from Russia's invasion while still under investigation for alleged sexual misconduct. The Department of National Defence, the Canadian War Office, confirmed on Thursday, so this is a few days ago now, nearly a week, that Lieutenant, or I think they say Lieutenant Governor in Canadian English, Trevor Cadieu, I think a well, French-Canadian name, whether he's Quebecois or not, I don't know, retired, so handed in his notice to the Canadian MOD on the 5th of April, after more than 30 years in uniform, even as military police continue their investigation into his conduct. It gets worse. Cadieu's sudden, and I'll read the next bit as one word because it is, retirement and departure, come more than six months after the popular officer was slated to take command of the Canadian Army, with some military insiders predicting his eventual appointment as Chief of the Defence Staff, so that's, uh, for those who don't follow the militaries closely, overall head of all three armed services. Now, the Defence Chief, General Wayne Eyre, insisted, instead quietly suspended Cadieu because the MOD only made a statement in Ottawa after this all came out about the alleged capture of Kadja in Azovstal. Air quietly suspended Kadja as army commander in September. So sorry, I'm, I'm mixing up two periods here, but it, it's true that the Canadian MOD only responded after the alleged capture. After Kadja was informed of what the Canadians have been described, describing as historical allegations of sexual misconduct. Here it gets worse, and I think Brian will probably want to comment. Following news of Kadja's departure, Air announced, this is a bit like an in petto appointment uh, by the Pope to a cardinal, announced that he had tapped Paul, to, uh, Lieutenant General Paul, to become the next commander of the Canadian Army. But there's more. The Army in Canada has been without a permanent commander since February 2021. That's over a year. When Eyre himself, the man we were just hearing announcing the, uh, the promotion, was tapped to serve as acting CDS, while the then Defence Chief, Admiral Ark MacDonald, was being investigated for alleged sexual behaviour. Although MacDonald was not charged, Prime Minister Trudeau opted to replace him permanently with Air. Another uh, French-Canadian, Michel-Henri Saint-Louis, has served as acting army head since April 2021. Air also announced the pending retirement of the Navy commander, Vice Admiral Craig Baines, who came under fire last July for golfing with the retired defence chief while he was the latter was under police investigation. A bit of a nest going on here. Baines, who apologised and was kept on as head of the Canadian Navy, promised, promised to make the most of his second chance, and he will be replaced by Rear Admiral Angus Tochi. Canadian press writes, Cadet is one of several senior commanders, several to be investigated by the military police for alleged sexual misconduct, misconduct in just one year. Those allegations, well, the, the usual signing off about uh, is there enough oversight of the military. So there is a heck of a lot actually going on uh, around this man. And all of a sudden, he does a bunk, and uh, no sooner has he done a bunk, there's his mugshot, Cadieu, then we find this going on. 
This is unconfirmed, I say for the fourth <clears throat> time, lest I be accused of, of misinformation. The Hal Turner radio show and some other French and English sources in North America are reporting as of yesterday, the 2nd of May, that he was allegedly captured in Mariupol in the Azovstal complex. Uh, the byline here is that, un or the text itself is that unconfirmed reports from various sources in Ukraine and Russia claim that Canadian Forces Lieutenant General Trevor Cadieux, of course, he was just out of the forces on paper when he was captured, has been captured by Russian forces in Mariupol. Uh, he, as he was allegedly trying to shimmy or, or crawl through, uh, use your imagination, a sewer pipe to get out of the Azovstal facility. Um, and the update as of 9.43am Eastern Daylight Time yesterday is that additional unconfirmed claims have now surfaced. So this is almost exactly 24 hours before at the time we're speaking, which allege that Kadja has been taken to Moscow to stand trial. He was also, and the source here, Hal Turner, is careful to capitalise this so you don't miss it, allegedly, he was allegedly in charge in that underground facility of Biolab Number 1, where 18 people worked with deadly viruses. Well, we'll let that stand or fall as, as time, take, or time proceeds. But, Brian, the Canadian Armed Forces, what kind of a state are they in, if we look at that summary from a mainstream source? Well, if you've got to the state where you don't have a senior officer in charge of a major arm of the military for a period of a year, you're obviously in full breakdown. Um, but, but one of the things that I've always said is that, of course, where you see the fraud and the, uh, the corruption, you need an engine to drive it. And that's got to be the blackmail. It may be normal sexual um, uh, activities going on or, or it could be the ultimate which is always children but we're in breakdown the same breakdown exists certainly in the US armed forces at, at the moment because many senior retired American uh, servicemen are talking about it and of course we know that here in UK we've also got breakdown occurring within the British armed forces um, so is this an accident across those three countries? No, I don't think so. This is orchestrated in order to transform those military structures into something rather different than a, a sovereign nation with its own sovereign armed forces. Now, I'm going to hand over to Mike in a moment for uh, something on Lavrov getting into hot water. Uh, but just to accompany that, I'll show a silent play out for a few seconds of uh, just after the 2014 Maidan coup, which is when Zelensky, still then only a comedian, was saying in his native Russian language, because he's from Krivoy Rog uh, in the southeast of the country, um, just after the Ukrainian new government started persecuting the Russian language in public, uh, he's making lots of gestures and saying, I know millions of good people in Russia proper. My community is Russian speaking in Ukraine. I don't have any loyalty to foreign countries. I just want to get along in peace. Leave our language alone. Let us speak it. Because, of course, this was the time when it was being outlawed from schools, kindergartens in some ways. Uh, uh, well, they were just about allowed in kindergarten, but main primary, not anymore. Cinemas, etc. And of course, it wasn't just Russian. It was Hungarian, Romanian, Polish, uh, Lithuanian, other minority languages in various parts of the country were equally being uh, outlawed from the public spa space. So, and he's wearing a Muhammad Ali T-shirt there. So he's undergone quite a transformation in more ways than one, as old Vlad. Uh, indeed. And uh, well, over the last couple of days, Alex, as you say, there's been quite a furore in the Western press uh, over comments made by Sergei Lavrov. Um, here's the uh, Sky News headline. Uh, Adolf Hitler had Jewish or origins, claims Russian minister Sergei Lavrov in rant. Uh, outrage as Israel uh, in Israel as Russia's Lavrov complains Hitler had Jewish roots, according to France 24. 
uh, the BBC had Israel outrage at Sergei Lavrov's claim that Hitler was part Jewish. Uh, and the Atlantic Council getting in on it as well. Uh, Lavrov's anti-Semitic outburst exposes absurdity of Russia's Nazi Ukraine claims. So uh, let's just have a look and see uh, what Lavrov had to say. Uh, well, first of all, he was asked a question and the question was, uh, this is how you see it. While Vladimir Zelensky puts it differently, he believes denazification doesn't make any sense. Uh, he is a Jew. The Nazis, as of, there are very few of them, brackets several thousand. Vladimir Zelensky refutes your view of the situation. Do you believe Vladimir Zelensky is an obstacle to peace? Um, and Sergei Lavrov said this. It makes no difference to me what uh, President Vladimir Zelensky uh, refutes or does not refute. He is as fickle as the wind. As they say, he can change his position several times a day. Uh, he said there is Nazification there. The captured militants, as well as members of the Azov and Adar uh, battalions and other units, wear swastikas uh, or symbols of Nazi Waffen-SS battalions on their clothes or have them tattooed on their bodies. They openly read and promote Mein Kampf. He said uh, Zelensky's argument is, how can there be Nazism in Ukraine if he's a Jew? I may be mistaken, said Lavrov, but Adolf Hitler had Jewish blood too. This means nothing. Uh, and he went on to say, the wise Jewish people say that the most ardent anti-Semites are usually uh, Jews. Every family has his black sheep, as we say. So that's what uh, that's what Sergei Lavrov said. But uh, and what he said, of course, was that Hitler had Jewish blood. Uh, now, if you do a search, a cursory search for those three words, Hitler and Jewish blood, uh, you get a whole swathe of discussion that's been going on for a very long time about the situation with Hitler and his paternal grandfather. Um, and so I've chosen deliberately the uh, Jerusalem Post coverage of this uh, because this is from 2019 and the headline is study suggests Adolf Hitler's paternal grandfather was Jewish. Now, the, po the point here is that there's been outrage uh, expressed in the media, outrage by Israel on the, what Lavrov said, but there was no outrage at the time with respect to this particular study or the person who uh, promoted the study. Uh, the, the study was promoted in the uh, Jewish press around the world and in the British media as well. So if we just put that back on screen, uh, let's have a look at what this says. Uh, was Adolf Hitler's paternal grandfather Jewish? The controversial theory has been debated for decades by historians with many agreeing that he was not part of the tribe, in, in quotes. Uh, as there was no evidence to substantiate this claim. However, a study of psychologist by psychologist and physician Leonard Sachs has shed new, new light supporting the claim that Hitler's father's father had Jewish roots. Uh, the study titled uh, Revisiting the Question of Adolf Hitler's Paternal Grandfather, uh, which was published in the current issue of the Journal of European Studies, examines claims by Hitler's lawyer, Hans Frank, uh, who allegedly discovered the truth. And again, there was no criticism of uh, the Journal for European Studies at the time either. Uh, Hitler asked Frank to look into the claim in 1930 after his nephew, uh, William Patrick Hitler, threatened to expose the leader's grandfather was Jewish. Uh, in his 1946 memoir, which was published seven years uh, after he was executed during the Nuremberg trials, uh, quotes, Frank claimed to have uncovered evidence in 1930 that Hitler's paternal grandfather was a Jewish man living in Graz, Austria, in the household where Hitler's grandmother was employed. Uh, and it was uh, in 1836 that Hitler's grandmother, Maria Anna Schickelgruber, uh, became pregnant. Sachs explained, uh, he went on to say, Frank wrote in his memoir that he conducted an investigation as Hitler had requested and he discovered that the existence of correspondence between 
uh, Maria Anna Schickelgruber, Hitler's grandmother, and a Jew named Frankenberger living in Graz. According to Frank, the letters hinted that Frankenberger's 19-year-old son uh, had impregnated Maria Anna while she worked in the Frankenberger household, that the illegitimate child of, of the Schickelberger had, uh, had been conceived under conditions which required Frankenberger to pay alimony. Uh, and it, the uh, article goes on to say, Sachs writes in the study that according to the letters in Frank's memoir, Frankenberger Sr. sent money for the support of the child from infancy until his 14th birthday. However, Sachs noted the accuracy uh, that the accuracy of Frank's claims in his memoirs have been questioned. So, uh, Vanessa and Alex, I'll start with Vanessa. Um, uh, my question is, why? What is it? Where does this outrage come from? Is it, is it because it was, you know, a foreign minister of Russia? Was it because it was Russia specifically, or was it because it was a politician, a foreign minister of a of a country's government, that the outrage was applied to him in those circumstances? When this discussion has been going on for decades, actually, and we haven't had the same outrage uh, uh, foisted upon anybody else. Now, I think you're muted. Right, well, okay. yeah, Back there on. we go. Um, I, I mean, for me, I found the, the timing of this very interesting. And we have to remember that, that much of the justification or, or rather the cover-up of the connection between uh, the government in uh, Kiev and the Azov battalions, although Zelensky himself has no problem admitting that the Azov battalions are um, um, absorbed into the Ukrainian military. But I think, I, I think this is, and I'd, I'd be interested to see what Alex thinks, but for me, this is a, a shot across the bows of the propaganda by Lavrov, because I think where he's heading with this is the, the fact that um, the, the, the Nazi movement, let's say, and to a large degree the Zionist movement have worked hand in glove. I mean, for example, we know that Odessa was known as the Gates of Zion. Um, Zayev Jabotinsky, sorry, I'm reading this who established groups like B'nai Avia, Hashemir Hatzair group, um, who were involved in the Palestinian uh, ethnic cleansing in 1948, the Nakba. He also established the Ergen um, terrorist group. Um, he worked hand in hand with uh, Simon Petlura, who was president of the Ukraine People's Republic 1918 to 21, who, uh, according to Zionists, information was responsible for the deaths of 50,000 Jews um, during the programs of the 1920s. But Jabotinsky saw a parallel between uh, Zionism and Ukrainian ultra-nationalism. So he persuaded Petlura to recognize the Jews as a nation, to allow them to have their own paramilitary and security forces. And this is where it's important. So this was in the 1920s, before the, the Zionist movement in um, the, uh, sorry, um, after the, the Zionist movement. Um, but there were various other orthodox, ultra-orthodox um, Zionist similar cults that, that were existing in Ukraine prior to the Zionist movement in the 1880s. Um, but effectively, these Jewish uh, paramilitary and police groups would be independent except in the case of a war with then the, the Soviet Union. So I think historically, I think Lavrov, knowing how 
the Russians' work and to some degree, and knowing how Lavrov's um, kind of diplomacy works, I think he's prodding the bear here. He's he's saying to them, "We know what's going on here. We know what has been going on for for well centuries, actually," um, and he's letting them know that. And I think that's where the outrage is coming from because they know exactly what it, what he's what he's getting at here. And we also have to remember the Russians are collating um, evidence of this. You know, the Russians are very quiet. They're not like the West in, in the fanfaring of what little evidence they have and, and the, the blowing up with hyperbole. The Russians keep quiet until they have everything collated, or at least that's my experience, for example, in Syria and even now in Ukraine. So I think the outrage is fear. Alex? Yes, uh, just to add, I, I very much agree with that. To add to that, I would say that the Israelis would have been less uh, annoyed, the ruling Israelis, I should say, not the people of Israel, uh, if it had been some uh, dyed-in-the-wool pro-Arabist, such as Yevgeny Primakov saying it, but it isn't. It's, um, it's Lavrov, who's been very careful to hold the balance in his Middle Eastern diplomacy. Uh, if you want the blunt answer to why, why the outrage now, it's simply that Lavrov and... Uh, we're not claiming equivalents, but in her own circles, Vanessa are Gentiles. I'm sorry to be blunt, but if you're a Gentile, you're not allowed to say you know the difference between different kinds of Zionists to this extent. The Jerusalem Post, Haaretz, the rest of the Israeli press will host excellent ding-dongs, better even than the American Jewish press between right, left, pro and anti-Zionist uh, factions of Jewry. But they're for Jews only to participate in is the do dominant narrative. Okay, So we're not supposed to touch this. That, that's why the outrage is there. Uh, if you want a one-hour primer of everything Vanessa has said, uh, superbly well done, find her on her Substack on her or on her YouTube channel uh, discussion with Matthew Ayret yesterday about this, how Jabotinsky, Helphand, and others of a second wave of more secular Zionism supplanted in the interests of Britain and America and their financial centres the first wave of religious Zionism. And that struggle still going on in Israel. David Scott would be the first to, to report on it, on how religious Zionists get treated like dirt uh, by the secular Zionists who run the show. And we're not allowed to talk about it. And Lavrov is talking about it, hence the outrage. Yes, okay, well, we'll just uh, very quickly uh, put this on screen. This is uh, from Politico because the outrage, not just uh, with respect to comments but by Lavrov, but also comments by the Pope. Uh, because uh, the Pope has decided that it's time to speak out on this, and he's saying that NATO may have caused the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so especially in Poland, uh, which of course very, still very close ties to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, having had a recent Pope themselves, uh, are very upset by this, uh, but it, right across the Western media as well, um, some criticism of the fact that he has made this statement. Uh, but Alex, uh, how can Ukraine build back better? Uh, I'm not even going to bother going through the gist of this article, but Foreign Affairs magazine uh, is, you know, as, as I repeat from what I said previously, don't confuse it with Foreign Policy, which is the in-house journal of the CFR, but it is influential in the Beltway. Uh, it's now arguing that Ukraine can build back better, interesting phrase, by using assets seized by the West from Russia. Of course, that's characterized here as the Kremlin's assets, so that we, we think of the da-da-da, to pay for reconstruction. But the main thing is this, uh, who are the authors? I say no more than pointing out to who the authors are. Philip Zelikow, former executive director of the 9-11 Commission 
and Simon Con Johnson of the MIT Sloan School of Management, former chief economist at the IMF. Any comment, Mike? Uh, well, I don't think there needs to be any comment on that. It goes hand in glove with all the other so-called uh, monetary aid being pushed into Ukraine, which is just going to control them through debt. Yes. And if you've made, made it through nearly an hour of Ukraine coverage, but well worth it today, given what we had to say, this is my uh, not final final, but and finally for the Ukraine segment. Suzanne Seddon tweets out, I have to laugh when I see stuff like this now. It's just beyond insane now. What is it that's beyond insane? It is this. The blessed Volodymyr of Krivoy Rog uh, now has candles to be burned for prayers of peace in Ukraine. And if we zoom in, it's a bit blurry because I've made it full screen, but on the um, blurb that goes with the candles of an almost bare-chested uh, blessed Volodymyr, it says, light a candle for Ukraine. All the proceeds will be donated, donated to the non-profit organization, and indeed it's a US charity, a proper 501c3 charity, Global Response Management. Uh, that turned out to be run by veterans, military veterans. I wonder what kind of veterans. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, we just want to emphasize that uh, we are looking at a lot of material that is good material, which is on the internet, which is about Ukraine. Several people have said, how do we search ourselves to see what's going on? So here on screen are a selection of uh, people. We're not saying that any particular one is right. What we are saying is that if you do scan across some of these channels, you will learn a great deal. Uh, Professor John Mearsheimer, who's uh, top left, um, very outspoken against the West policy. He says NATO's created the war. I wouldn't agree with him on some of the other more military things that he says. Uh, Leave Noir is uh, part of the French journalistic uh, group that are reporting from uh, well inside the war zone. They are very good. Uh, we've obviously got uh, tweets coming out from a variety of people. Uh, but I, Earl Grey, I've mentioned before, a young man doing some very good analysis of what's happening. Uh, bottom left, we've got just one of the many reports that are now indicating it's very clear that the Ukrainian armed forces are starting to retreat in many areas. They have fought immensely bravely, but the facts are that the Russians are effectively now a steamroller starting to move through but that steamroller does not move fast. Uh, we've got local reports as in center and far right, we've got one of the many tweet reports about the Canadian uh, general that we've commented on. Uh, here's some more, obviously the Duran well-established, the Dreisen report, extremely good. Uh, the new Atlas had some interesting information, but the ones at the bottom of this screen are where it gets very interesting because there's now a number of sites doing very detailed analysis of the war on the ground, showing very detailed maps. Uh, so you might like to go and have a look at uh, those. You'll know, freeze this on screen to see it. Defence Politics Asia, uh, I have found to be uh, particularly um, helpful. So there we are. That's uh, somewhere for you to have a look at. And um, if I can move on through, we also get clues from the BBC because it's obvious now the BBC doesn't really want to report on Ukraine and the reason is that if they were to do so they would start to reveal that Ukraine is now suffering on the battlefield and suffering huge casualties which of course Boris Johnson is going to uh, inflate further uh, by telling the Ukrainians mistakenly that they can win. And uh, this one uh, 
was um, a repeat from something I think we put up on uh, Monday. Yes. So this was just reinforcing the fact that uh, uh, at every way we turn, they're trying to get more weapons into Ukraine. Okay, now let's uh, just very briefly uh, talk about the propaganda operation in the UK. And uh, well, somebody, thank you very much for this, uh, hinted that I might want to go and have a look at a job uh, that the civil service is advertising at the moment. Except when I went to have a look at it, I'm not able to view the job because it's already been withdrawn or has been closed. But uh, luckily, it is still possible to find it if we want. Uh, this is uh, a job within the Homeland Security Group, uh, RICU, uh, and uh, it's for a senior campaign manager. Uh, the job uh, application closed on the 27th of April. Uh, the Research Information and Communications Unit, RICU, is uh, a, an insight and research-led communications unit uh, embedded within the Prevent Directorate uh, in the Homeland Security Group. Uh, we are responsible for developing and implementing evidence-based campaigns and behavior change activity in support of national security priorities. So let's just uh, have a look at the hierarchy of this. Uh, it is within the Home Office, but then you've got the Homeland Security Group and then the Prevent Directorate uh, and then the Research Information and Communications Unit. Uh, and so uh, here is Chloe Squires, who is the Director General of the Homeland Security Group. Now this, uh, uh, this group, RICU, is modelled largely on uh, this organisation, uh, the original fake news unit, the BBC and the Information Research Department. Now this is from Morningstar. I absolutely recommend this article. Go and have a read at it. This is Ian Sinclair uh, and the subhead says that he's revealing uh, the hidden history of the BBC's relationship with the secret state, suppression of subversives and support of the military for military intervention overseas. Now, the Information Research Unit, the IRD, was eventually shut down in 1977 by David Owen, but it's the inspiration for this uh, RICU organization. Uh, it was the government department which George Orwell uh, gave his list of suspected communists to, including people like Charlie Chaplin and Michael Redgrave at the time. Uh, and it, uh, also IRD agents took part in uh, many historic events, uh, including uh, the entry into the European Economic Community, the Korean War, the Suez Crisis, the Malayan Emergency, the Northern Ireland Troubles, the Mau Mau Uprising, uh, the Cyprus Emergency. Um, so they were conducting smear attacks on British trade unionists. Uh, they were attacking opponents of the British military. Uh, they were planting fake news stories in the British press and also the press abroad. And of course, this is very much uh, another organization or section within the British government modeled also on the Inter Information Research Department, which was Andy Price's uh, counter disinformation and media development group within the Foreign Office. So uh, this, although the IRD was shut down in 1977, the model was continued to be used and Britain pushing out, continuing to push out uh, propaganda. So why are we mentioning this today? Well, uh, a contract has been awarded as part of the Media Monitoring and Associated Services uh, framework, as it's called, which is a, a, a sort of a, a tranche of money which is given out to, to multiple contracts. And it's been given uh, to this organization here, Press Data Limited. Um, and I believe it's about 1.1 million pounds or less than that. Here is Press Data's website. Delivering value through, through insight is how they describe themselves. It's a two-year deal. It was signed uh, in January, uh, as I say, just under 1.1 million pounds awarded to them for uh, monitoring and analyzing media coverage of public communications activity across multiple channels, including broadcast, online, and social media. So uh, the 
diagram that I have of the government's propaganda network is now completely out of date uh, because we haven't included uh, the, uh, this particular program and this particular, these particular organisations. Um, but for the UK government, Alex, to be uh, saying, just very briefly, please, uh, to be saying, you know, that uh, Russia is bombarding the West with its dis disinformation when we have, when we can evidence the fact that the British government has established so, so much institutional infrastructure in order to pursue exactly the same aims. Uh, again, we have to use the hypocrisy word here. Yes, and if you want to know the other side of George Orwell's career, which he repented of by writing his book 1984, uh, it is that he was originally one of the torturing policemen himself before he hated himself for doing it. And a very recent book, uh, I forget the authoress's name, on that is Finding George Orwell in Burma. I also, also noticed that the uh, the strap line for the category of contract award that show, you showed on screen uh, when you showed who had been awarded it is entitled Media Monitoring and Associated Services, or very similar wording. Well, if media monitoring also includes the, the playing the poach keeper, poacher as well as the gamekeeper through shaping people's minds in social media behavioural stuff, doesn't that give us more of a clue as to what BBC monitoring has been doing all these years, as rather Brian has been suggesting in his analysis? Yes, 100%. Well, I would certainly say so. More on that in due course. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do uh, share any material that you find on the various platforms. Okay, well, I'm just bringing this one up on screen very briefly. Louise Collins was very kind to send us a communication or exchange a communication with a local MP. Um, and uh, that was uh, a Conservative MP, Mr Magnell. Um, she basically said to him that uh, how was it that our veterans, elderly and those in poverty had never been offered a £350 monthly payment uh, to see them through the winter or buy clothes and food. But we seem to be offering people who are coming in as refugees now uh, the £350 payment. And she's essentially saying pretty strongly, uh, shouldn't we be spending this money on people who are living in Britain and uh, chastising him for the fact that he is supporting this new agenda? Well, the response she got back was pretty typical now for MPs. So he said, thank you for sharing your views on the war in Ukraine. While I appreciate your strength and feeling on the issue and take on board your concerns, I'm afraid I disagree. I do not believe we can equate the current cost of living with the need to compensate those taking in Ukrainian refugees to offer them sanctuary from the ravaging of their country by war. I also believe it is of the utmost importance for the security of the whole of Europe to stand up to Russia's egregious actions. If we shy away from standing up for sovereignty in Ukraine and for this totally unjustified uh, aggression, uh, it will only embolden Putin to the point uh, where our own national security is threatened. We must make a stand here and now that these actions uh, will not be tolerated. Thank you again for contacting me. So pretty typical there. Um, that the local MP has simply brushed the concerns away, more concerned uh, with how we're going to help out Ukraine than how we're going to help people who are living in the country. And I find this a despicable and duplicitous um, uh, way of dealing with people in this country. 
uh, by our local MPs. But let's move on to the subject of uh, the NHS and the M uh, MHRA and indeed the nation's health. I'm going to welcome Debbie Evans and say, Debbie, thank you for staying with us. We've had a very long segment on Ukraine this morning. And of course, your take uh, on things is that while things go on in Ukraine, uh, that is the overwhelming smokescreen by which some very uh, dangerous things are being done in other areas around the NHS and, and the health of the nation. So welcome. And um, what are your initial comments? Oh, good afternoon. And, and do apologise if you can hear a slight hiss. My laptop computer's decided to fire up. So if you can hear that, I apologise. Um, yeah, as you know, I'm I'm kind of a little bit of a play on words. I'm focusing mainly on UK rain, as in June rain, um, because I do see an awful lot going on within the NHS or, and a lot stopping within the NHS. And the MHRA have got huge powers that... Um, maybe are not being looked at as much as we should be looking at. So I'm concentrating my, my focus on, on that. Okay, and of course you've been staying with the MHRA. Now I've just got a couple of um, slides here which you were keen to put up, but of course the MHR at the moment, uh, MHRA at the moment trying to uh, puff up its image and in particular to say to people, trust us, we're, tra <laughs> we're transparent. We don't have conflicts of interest, but rather the proof seems to be uh, very different that when we ask MHRA questions, uh, they don't want to uh, necessarily reply. So this first one here, if we can pop it on screen, is, uh, is the MHRA putting out an advert saying we're seeking your views to help strengthen our conflicts of interest policy. Uh, our reply to that is they're pretty opaque. Uh, but you've also been noticing that uh, after the UK column has got public interest into the uh, MHRA's online, that's uh, YouTube board meetings, they suddenly seem to be backtracking a bit. Um, what are they doing here? Are they now having all the meetings in private or are they mixing and matching depending on the topics? Well, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, and as yet, you know, the, the, the last uh, board meeting on YouTube was February. Um, the March one was held in private. That was suddenly cancelled. The April one isn't yet up. And then I was expecting, I was looking for tickets for the May board meeting. Uh, but clearly you can see that there isn't about to be a May board meeting, according to that document. There's a June and then it seems to be three monthly. So I have emailed Dame June Rain again and asked her if the board meetings will be carrying on, but some of them will be held in private and some of them will help be held in public, or whether they're just going to three monthly board meetings. And it's interesting, you know, because still today I haven't received any of the answers to my questions that I put at the MHRA board meeting. It's not on YouTube and the written minutes for the February meeting haven't been put up either. And I don't seem to be getting a lot of replies from the MHRA at the moment. I seem to be stonewalled. I can't imagine why. Uh, I think I can imagine why, uh, Debbie, and that's because you're asking very good questions that they either can't or don't want to answer. But of course, the other person that you had a very interesting exchange with recently was none other than 
Jeremy Hunt himself. Uh, we've just got an image here, which was a screenshot of the Zoom meeting that you were uh, invited to participate in. And in that meeting, you were able to ask Jeremy Hunt a pretty clear question. Now, we'll just play a very short video clip so that we know exactly what you asked him. And uh, we've then got an email that he sent back to you where he didn't appear to have the answer. Let's look at the question first. Because we're drawing to a close, Iqbal, did you want to take another couple of questions and I can I'm happily talk about all of them together? Would that be helpful? Okay. That would be because we've got two colleagues who got their hands up and I think it'll be only fair. But could I ask you both, Debbie and Ondine, please try and be very short in your questions. It's first to Debbie. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for allowing me to ask a question. Um, Jeremy, I just wanted to ask because the MHRA obviously are in charge of patient safety when it comes to pharmacovigilance and the um, PA, uh, PEAG group at the Commission for Human Medicines. But according to the MHRA data, um, as I'm seeing today, as of today, there are over um, one and a half million serious adverse reactions and 2,000 uh, deaths. Now, I know we cannot attribute these to the vaccine, and I appreciate that. However, without forensic investigations and without further investigation, we're never going to know. And as, as a nurse, I'm meeting people who are saying that they're reporting yellow cards to the MHRA, but they're not receiving any help or support back, either from their GPs or from the MHRA. So I just wondered what your thoughts were with regarding to a, an investigation on the serious adverse reactions that we're currently seeing. Thank you. Debbie's question, I, I want to take that away um, because I, um, I think it's something that my committee might be interested in looking at. And I'll need to talk to my other members of my committee because we decide these things democratically. But I, um, when I was health secretary, I commissioned the University of Sheffield, Leeds and Manchester to do a report onto medication error. Um, and, you know, we found there were 8,000 deaths a year. And, um, you know, obviously we are very concerned about the uh, adverse reactions that we have from the COVID vaccines. Um, it's not for me to make a judgment as to the balance of risk, um, but I think we do need to fully understand the issues that you raise. So that was pretty clear. Um, Debbie, you raised the issue of 2,000 people dying and uh, approaching uh, one and a half million adver vaccine adverse reactions. He says he needs to go away. Things are done democratically, but he'll get an answer for you. Uh, I'll bring up his reply, which he sent to you, uh, sent to you and then we'll get you to respond. Uh, so this is the email Debbie received back from Jeremy Hunt. Dear Miss Evans, thank you for your email. And my apologies, you'd not received a reply to your email of the 4th of April. That's when she was chasing up the response to her question, which our audience has just seen in the Zoom meeting. As chair of the committee, I receive a very large amount of correspondence and it takes time to respond to each one with the attention it deserves. Thank you for taking the time to attend the patient safety webinar. And I appreciate the concerns you raised on adverse reactions from the COVID-19 vaccination. The Health and Social Care Committee members decided collectively at the areas they will look into. It's only fair to point out that I receive a lot of emails asking the committee to look into a number of aspects of health which are as equally 
as important as each other. I will consider your request for an investigation into this matter the next time the committee meets to discuss its future programme. Uh, Debbie, my take on this is you've got a classic fob off. He's taken your question back to the committee and they didn't like it. And he's unfortunately been left with the dirty work of pushing you away. Or am I being unkind? No, I think sadly, Brian, I think you're 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 right. But, you know, clearly he said on camera and he said in that email that these COVID-19 vaccine serious adverse reactions are of a serious concern. And yet they're not serious enough to put on the agenda of the Health and Social Care Committee or on his own patient watch committee that he founded. So you know you can walk the walk but sorry you can talk the talk but he's not walking the walk and as 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 i think we'll come to see in a few minutes um you know i have to look at jeremy hunt's um motives as to what his intentions are with regards to serious adverse reactions because for me they are a priority and i believe that he's getting many emails i know that he's getting many emails many from our audience who are emailing him with these same regards. So, you know, the concerns are there. These numbers are escalating every single day, um, but he clearly doesn't want to answer the question. And that makes me even more suspicious. Okay, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, maybe he's got other things on his mind. So this headline perhaps starts to spell it out. So it's from I, Tories descend into infighting over claims Jeremy Hunt is plotting leadership bid if Boris Johnson is ousted. So this is where it starts to get interesting. We've got another one here. Uh, this is the Spectator back in January, but nevertheless, it's, it's of interest. Will Jeremy Hunt be the next prime minister? The former foreign secretary can do better than a, a Portillo career. Uh, well, that's pretty interesting. What does the man say himself? Uh, Jeremy Hunt, my leadership ambitions uh, have not completely vanished. Um, so this man is obviously uh, is keen to see where he can take himself. Sorry, I've jumped ahead there. Seems uh, keen to see where he can go. Um, but in the background, of course, he's deeply involved in all matters to do with global health. Just give us your comments on how do you fancy Jeremy Hunt as prime minister? I don't. It's just, I really, really don't, actually. It completely terrifies me when I look back and see um, what he's been up to whilst he was health secretary. Because don't forget, he was health secretary from 2012 to 2018. And that was at the same time that I was at the Department of Health. So uh, I bumped into him a couple of times in a corridor. But um, what he's been doing with regards to life sciences, as, and as we'll see in a minute, and I'm sure you'll have comment on this, Brian with and, and Mike, with no blame, the, the, the no blame agenda that we're looking at. You know, clearly Jeremy Hunt has a very clear agenda ahead of him. He's got aspirations of being prime minister, I'm absolutely sure. He went for leadership before and came second against Boris Johnson. But you know, there's also been some misdemeanors that we mustn't forget with, with regards to Jeremy Hunt. Um, he breached the anti-money laundering legislation in 2018 by failing to declare 50% um, in, in a property firm uh, to company's house within 28 days. Um, he's been pictured hiding behind trees. 
he was involved in the in the massive junior doctors strike if you remember um he also blamed um hillsborough on football hooliganism um you know he's got quite a history and it would appear i didn't know but the name jeremy apparently means appointed by god um and he's also a, a distant but direct descendant of the queen and he's also on the privy council so he's very very active and i'm sure that we'll see a lot more of him in the coming uh, coming weeks especially as we've got elections in the next 24 hours local elections so maybe they're trying to oust boris and uh, maybe we'll see a leadership bid sooner rather than later okay uh, debbie thank you for that well you've probably given us the the uh, key bit as to why we should be concerned about jeremy hunt I'm going to bring up some slides quite quickly because uh, we're tight for time at the moment. Um, but of course, this man is putting himself on stage. We can see it here, uh, saying that he is the man standing up to help world patient safety. It's no longer about safety in UK. You can see the, uh, the text here that this is part of the sixth annual World Patient Safety Science and technology summit so he's very good at standing on the stage he's not so good at ask, answering questions put to him in person about patient safety when it's to do with vaccines but we got more going on here because uh, this is extremely interesting this is from a blame culture to a learning culture and this is about massive change more change in the nhs uh, where we're going to make it safer by getting rid of anybody being guilty of doing anything wrong as far as I can see. So small print for these I know, but I'll go through them very uh, 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 quickly and you can freeze the, the uh, screen in order to take in what's uh, being said in detail. Uh, top left it says, but to blame failures in care on doctors and nurses trying to do their best is to miss the point that bad mistakes can be made by good people. This is very interesting language here because you say, what happens when the brain surgeon makes mistakes? He learns by it, apparently, Mike. So that's, that's good. The conclusion here, distinguished guest Karl Popper said, true ignorance is not the absence of knowledge, but the refusal to acquire it. So now is the time to use the power of intelligent transparency to make sure that we really do turn our healthcare systems into learning organizations and offer our patients uh, the safe, high quality they deserve. So they're going to learn on the job training. That was back in 2016. Here's uh, Jeremy Hunt talking about balancing risks uh, with regard to vaccine blood clots. Um, this is more about the information that he's putting out. So this is part of his patient safety weekly update. And you received this uh, email, Debbie. Um, and then it brings us through to things like this. If you can just comment briefly on sodium valparate, I know you've picked up on um, in this material from Jeremy Hunt. Why were you concerned about what you saw there? Well, while I was, I'm, I'm very glad that the sodium valparate made the agenda because quite rightly, it's an extremely urgent issue. But what alarmed me was that despite my having asked him about serious adverse reactions, if you look, or if people freeze the screen on, on, on that shot, on the COVID news, the, they're talking about the COVID dashboard. They're talking about COVID mortality. There's no mention there of serious adverse reactions, and yet there could have been. So 
I wrote back to him immediately and asked why there was no inclusion of what I, I believe would be a priority question and an urgent question with regards to, to the serious adverse reaction. So there was just no mention of it on the agenda of the Patient Safety Committee at all. Right. Okay. Now, Debbie, you, you were very concerned, have been very concerned about the way that there's an explosion in size of the life sciences sector in UK. And what you're highlighting is the fact that the pharmaceutical, the global pharmaceutical companies are getting closer and closer to government. Um, so you'd picked up on this one here. This is uh, going back to 2018, but it's talking about investments of 85 million in this sector. And then here we've got an organization called UCB, a global pharmaceutical company. Um, we're now into the 150 million and the 200 million. Um, this stuff is growing exponentially. And what we're seeing is a partnership where it's difficult to tell government and the pharmaceutical companies apart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, all I can say is that where, from where I'm sitting, it would appear that the, the UK has got great aspirations of being a superpower. And what what no better area than life sciences. Only the problem is, is that the UK seem to be our po the population of the United Kingdom are being used as the lab rats for the rest of the world. So, you know, we must remember that we're getting drugs rolled out courtesy of the MHRA emergency approvals or conditional authorizations. We're getting them rolled out in the UK first in the world. You know, Drugs like Valneva, drugs like Molnupiravir aren't being used anywhere else. They're being tested and primed here. So clearly, we seem to be lab central for the whole of the planet. And this whole life sciences agenda is growing and growing and growing to the point where you're going to go out of your front door and on the industrial estate, maybe close to you, there'll be a bio lab or there'll be some other kind of biotech company. Or, or, or a health facility, a health hub. The, the landscape's changing completely with regards to the UK life sciences. Okay, Debbie, thank you for that. And we, we're going to end here with two uh, very, very interesting little video clips. And the first one is talking about World Health. You founded its uh, Geneva 2022. Let's just have a little listen to what's being planned for us. And your point is that UK is absolutely at the lead of this uh, new One World Health Agenda. Thank you, Olivia. So the following session will target the One Health approach. The four lead technical focal points of the quadripartite organizations will be formally together for the very first time in a public forum. They will be addressing uh, the inclusion of environmental factors in a One Health approach and ultimately addressing the question, One Health, is there a paradigm shift? So before we get to it, the four directors of the organizations co comprising the One Health quadripartite have sent their welcoming videos. Colleagues, today's first uh, plenary session of the Geneva Health Forum is an important step forward. As our world faces increased threats, the One Health approach is the vital to ensure a collective and a holistic response. 
if we do not take the action, this global challenges will have a devastating consequences on our planet, on our capacity to feed the world sustainably. We need a broad paradigm shift. Embrace structural solutions with a strong emphasis on the upstream prevention. We need to rethink our relationship with our environment that connects us all and determines the health of people, planet, animals, and ecosystems. At FO, we firmly believe that this paradigm shift is anchored in the transformation of world agro-food systems to make them more efficient, more inclusive, more resilient, and more sustainable. This transformation promotes healthy ecosystem and inclusive socio-economic models. And it is critical for achieving better production, better nutrition, better environment, and better life for all leaving no one behind. The One Health approach is the key to achieve this transformation, but we cannot do it alone. We need the collective combination of our knowledge, expertise, and innovative thinking. Together, we can unlock the transformative power of ecosystem chain that will lead to health, social, economic, and environmental benefit. Considering that 60% of the emerging diseases are of animal origin, the One Health approach is essential for pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response, as well as for the other important action tracks, such as antimicrobial resistance and combating neglected disease and they still affect many low and middle income countries. So there we have it. It's to do with health. But when you actually listen to what the man says, everything is uh, drawn together under one banner. And uh, Debbie, as you've said, UK is at the lead. Um, I'll just give you 20 seconds to reply on that one. I'd just like to get the Bill Gates video in for the end of the news today because it's so astonishing. But uh, what did you pick up from that conference? Well, it's a very interesting conference. Not many people are watching it. It's taking place at the moment. I caught a live session of it. But clearly you can see all I need to say, Brian, is one world order, one world health. You know, one world health says it all really, doesn't it? Yes. And UK is at the forefront of it. And of course, if it's one world health, we need quality people, completely um, unqualified, of course, like Bill Gates, in order to tell us how to do things. Let's have a look at this video, which is presumably for adults. If we make the right investments, we won't need to live in fear of another COVID. We can build a health system that is ready to stop outbreaks before they go global. Here's how it should work. Epidemiologists will detect suspicious clusters of a disease that could cause a pandemic. A global team of 3,000 disease experts managed by the WHO called the Germ Team will track the disease and share data and recommendations with governments. Governments and pharmaceutical companies will work together to use factories all over the world to get an unprecedented scale of diagnostics and vaccines very quickly. We'll have an agreed protocol and we'll understand how to share the results globally. Countries and the WHO will work in the best way to allocate these tools and to make sure that we have the logistics and delivery to get them to everyone who needs them. 
the key to be ready for a potential pandemic is to practice. And so this germ team will work with each country to do germ games, drills where you see, are you ready? Could you get the diagnostics out? So we're ready to go when we see the outbreak. Diseases are always going to spread among humans, but they don't have to become pandemics. You can read more about this in my new book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. Of course, if you've helped create the pandemic, it must be pretty easy to write a book on how not to create the pandemic. Uh, Debbie, we are very short of time, so I, I'm going to say thank you very much for that segment. We've a lot more to cover on the medical side, and we will do that in uh, future UK column news uh, editions. We're just going to end with this uh, graphic, which I think has come from Alex. Alex, yes. There we are. Uh, in fact, three of my favourite memes, five seconds each. One is, makes you feel old seeing these two growing up. On the left is the 1970s and 80s test card girl with her clown doll. And on the right is Boris Johnson uh, with his latest paramour. Uh, Matt Hancock, and I won't re uh, reverse the M and E-H. This is a parody account. So if you reverse them, you'll understand it's a parody account. Uh, his sock puppet says, I will be taking legal action against the original poster and anyone who posts this. You don't have free speech to say this, my lawyers are watching. What is the fake Matt Hancock afraid of? This meme by the artist David Art, D-A-Y-V-I-D-A-R-D. Hancock topped more pensioners than Harold Shipman, and he has a broader grin on his face than the famous murdering doctor. Finally, Mr. Bean appears in a cornfield trying to find his directions, and the meme text is, I'm trying to follow the science, capital T, capital S, but it keeps leading me back to the money, capital T, capital M. Yes. Very good. Excellent. Well, I think that sums it up. We are out of time. So we're going to say thank you very much to uh, Alex, uh, Vanessa and Debbie for joining us today. Thank you to our audience. A very big thank you to everybody who's supporting the UK column. Uh, we will be back for, for extra. an extra time shortly. I'm just checking because we're... Uh, over, our new, uh, over our normal time. And of course, we will also be seeing you on Friday. So thanks very much for joining us. Bye-bye.